Well, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and if you were here last week, we talked about Jesus is showing himself as a king. This is the last week of his life on earth, and a lot of the Gospels really focus on that time. This is what we call Passion Week, and it corresponds really neatly with with the time of the year it is, because we're heading into Easter right now. But Jesus made an entrance into the city of Jerusalem last week in the passage we were studying, and we, we just pointed out three things. He's a different kind of king. He's not like any earthly king or ruler that you've ever encountered. And the points last week were, he's the different kind of king, number one, uh, because this king controls all the details. Every single thing that's going on. He's fulfilling scripture. He found a donkey tied uh, with its mother in another city up the hill, the Mount of Olives. And that scripture's fulfilled. It was prophesied that the king would ride in on a donkey hundreds of years before it happened. You know, earthly, other earthly kings clamor and try to control details, but Jesus is sovereign. It's no effort for him at all. Secondly, he's a different kind of king uh, because he came in humility. He didn't come riding on a war horse with a sword. He came riding on a donkey in humility. And people were throwing their cloaks and their blankets in the road and waving palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, God, please save us. And the third way he's a different kind of king is because this king came to die. He didn't come to kill. You know, other kings conquer by force, by violence. There's bloodshed. It's awful. And sometimes that happens in the name of Jesus. Some of the crusade wars gave a terrible view of Christianity to the world. But this king is different. And we want to continue that kingly theme this week. We're going to look today that Jesus is the people's king. That may sound like just a title we're pulling out of thin air, but it really fits here. That he is a a king who is for the people. We hear that if you listen to talk radio all the time. If you hear the uh, Morgan and Morgan and Morgan and Morgan. I don't know how many Morgans there are. There's a bunch of them. But they always say, for the people, offices in Orlando, right? Well, you don't have to go to Orlando to have access to this king. He's everywhere, right? This is the people's king. He is actually for the people. He is walking into Jerusalem. He's coming to his temple the way that the scriptures prophesied he would. And he's going to show us something about himself that's astonishing and staggering. And this is honestly, this is one of those passages as a pastor, as a Bible teacher. Sometimes we come to a passage and there's some very clear takeaway Uh, There's a command to be obeyed. There's a sin that that God's calling you to repent of. Um, There's a to-do list. But sometimes there's a story. It's just so captivating and so riveting. I can't really squeeze a to-do list out of this. There's some application I want to give with with the Spirit's help that will hopefully settle in your heart and hit you where you live. Um, But this is, you don't leave here with a to-do list. God's not calling us to curse trees, cleanse temples, and confront leaders, right? I think what he wants us to do is, is, is sit back, and behold our king. This is, this is the king that we have that is, who is for us. He's a different kind of king, and he's also for us. And I guess the takeaway would be, is this the king that you follow? Is this King Jesus, or do you have a different kind of king who does other things for his people, who makes promises for you that the Bible never made? Or maybe he's just a political king. He's, he's like your conservative king or your traditional king, but you know, he's going to confront us with the kind of king he is in this passage, and that would be the takeaway. And the Bible does say this. It says, we are being changed into the very image of Christ from one level of glory to the next as we behold him. And that simply means this. As we look at Jesus and behold him and stare at him and wonder, something very mysterious and spiritual and strange happens. We begin to imitate him. I can sit up here and exhort you and wag my finger at you, and dump law on you all day long. But the Bible says, and there is a place for that, by the way, but the Bible says the transforming power comes from beholding Jesus Christ 
and all that he is for us and all that he has done on our behalf, right? So that's, I believe, what one of the takeaways from this passage is. We're going to just behold Christ. So we're going to see three points here in this passage. The people's king. Jesus is the people's king, and that means three things here. He's the king who inspects. He is the king who inspects, who surveys. Secondly, he is the king who brings order. He walks into the temple and he takes command. He takes charge. And third, he is the king who sacrifices. So those are the three points that we're going to see today. And the first one is found just in, in verse 11. And I guess I could, should turn where we're at here in Mark's gospel. I backed up because I wanted to include verse 11. Because if, if you remember last week, he rode into the gates of Jerusalem on a donkey. The people were hailing him. And then it got very quiet and the people seemed to disappear. The scripture just focuses on Jesus going to the temple. And he seems to be all by himself. He walked into the temple and look, look what happens. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. This is the night before the things that we read about today that happened. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus walks into the temple, and he inspects everything. This is his temple. He's the king. This belongs to him. All of this is pointing to him. And he takes a survey. He looks at all the activity that's going on here. And I would have just loved to have been there. You know, there's so many amazing paintings. I'm, I, I wish I could paint. I wish I could draw. I can't. I wish I could sing. I, I can't do much of anything, actually. But I love art, and I love looking at ancient medieval art that tries to capture events in the Bible. And I don't think I've ever found one of Jesus standing in the temple by himself, just taking inventory on what's going on there. And we found out a little bit later what was going on. But it's interesting to me, Jesus the night before, he could have done all the things that he did on this day, but he didn't. He didn't. He was master of the moment in complete control of his emotions, which is going to prove important because a lot of people have a hard time with this passage that we're going to look at today. They think Jesus is out of control here. He's off his rocker. It must have been a time change here or something. He woke up on the, on the wrong side of the bed and he was hungry and there were no fig trees. So he's cursing the tree. He's turning over tables in the tent. He's like a little kid throwing a temper tantrum. Uh-uh. No, no. That's completely contrary to everything else we read about Jesus. He is in complete control of himself. Isn't that one of the fruits of the spirit, by the way? We forget that one. Self-control. Jesus had absolute control of his emotions at all times. He never lost his temper, okay? He had a righteous temper. He had a righteous indignation. So a lot of people struggle with this passage. They don't really know what it's doing here, but he is the king who inspects, and he took notice of everything going on, and then he left. And knowing what we know about Jesus, he probably spent a night in prayer and reflection, and he woke up the next day knowing exactly what he needed to do. And that's where the, the scripture picks up. Look at verse 12. So on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. This, this would be worthy of an entire sermon. The Son of God, God in human flesh, is hungry. He's 100% truly man. He's 100% truly God. So he understands our weaknesses, our longings, our fears, our vulnerabilities. He gets all of that. He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Man, that would be a great title for the message. Nothing but leaves. If you write in your Bible, that, that would be something you, you could underline. Because that's a, a great statement summarizing the state and the condition 
of religion in Israel. Nothing but leaves. Absolutely barren. Nothing healthy, nothing helpful. Nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus inspects. He walked up to this fig tree that was boasting this huge leaves. And you probably already know this, but in case you don't, fig trees actually produce the fruit fig, the figs, before they produce the leaves. So if you saw a tree, a fig tree, and it had leaves, it would be very reasonable for you to expect there's going to be huge fruit on this tree, right? A lot of people struggle with that. They're like, Jesus, come on, you're, you're God. You knew. You knew it's not the season for figs. That's right. It wasn't the season for figs. So this tree had no business having all these amazing leaves in the first place. This tree was boasting something. This tree was making a claim that it couldn't make good on. And it was right by the road on the way to Jerusalem. It was almost as if this tree is going, look at me. I mean, come to me and you're going to find some of the most amazing fruit you've ever seen in your life. And Jesus was hungry, just like scores of pilgrims were hungry, going into Jerusalem for Passover celebration. And they wanted to meet with God and find their longing fulfilled, had their sins forgiven, right? They wanted to encounter God. But when they got there, there was nothing but leaves, no fruit. And what did Jesus do? He cursed the tree. This is pretty amazing. This is the only destructive miracle you will ever find in the New Testament. Just, just, some people have a hard time with it. Even people that, on everything else I've read, seem to be really solid biblical scholars. One guy, William Barclay, he said, this seems unworthy of Jesus. I'm like, what? We, well, bro, you don't get to pick and choose what, what stays in the Bible and what comes out. This is in there. And God wants us to take notice of this and learn from it. Jesus cursed this tree. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, ever. You're done. You are out of commission. You have failed to live up for the purpose that I created you. God made trees that bear fruit for us to enjoy, right? Among other reasons. There's beauty, and I know there's all kinds of plants. I'm not a horticulturist or anything like that. But fig trees are for producing figs, and this one didn't. Jesus didn't curse this fig tree um, because it wasn't the season for figs. Uh, that, would, that, would be, that would be strange. No, he, produ- he, he cursed this fig tree because it was false. It was lying. It was deceptive, and it was empty, and it was hollow. Oh, yeah, just like Israel was, just like the temple was. Did you guys know in the Old Testament, the fig tree was like the catch-all metaphor for the nation of Israel? I'm not going to cite for you all the passages, but Israel was always referred to as a fig tree that God took, and he planted in his garden. He nourished it, and he put manure around it, and put it in the most strategic position where it could get all the sunlight that it needed, to grow and thrive and be healthy and provide shade and provide fruit. And Israel was just like this fig tree. It had all these religious leaves of ceremony, made all these boasts, made all these claims, but at the end of the day, it was empty. Rotten, empty, hollow, deceptive. And worse than that, counterproductive. Not only did they not find anything when they came to Israel, what they did find was damning and misled people. People trying to find God and encounter God, and it was blinding them and sending them away with the, with the wrong message. This is the king who inspects, and there was nothing but leaves here. So this is really about hypocrisy. This little cursing miracle sounds crazy to say, the miracle of the cursing, right? It's preparing us for the very next thing that's about to happen, which is the biggest part of this passage and, and of the message today. Jesus is about to confront religious hypocrisy. You know, Jesus hated that. 
When I was growing up in Arkansas, the, the buckle of the Bible belt, my, my sweet mother, and she still does, she does not like the word hate. And I remember that was one of the things as a kid you couldn't say. You could get away with saying a lot of stuff in my house, but you did not use the word hate. And so I, I was always trying to find a way a, a, around things. And I'm like, well, mom, you know, as a little kid, I'm like, well, aren't there some things we're supposed to hate, like the devil? And she said, well, well yeah. And I'd say, well, I hate the devil. She'd say, well, son, you, you just want to say the word hate, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I, want to, I hate sin, I hate the devil. But you know what? I don't, I don't think that hate is too strong of a word to use for how Jesus, being God in flesh, how Jesus feels about hypocrisy. He hates it. He hates it. He will judge it. He abhors it. He condemns it because of the damage that it does. And you see that over and over. If you want to see where some of the strongest language ever was reserved for Jesus, it was for hypocrisy. If, if, you've, if you want to have a, a really interesting Lord's Day meditation, read Matthew 23 and you'll know exactly how God feels about religious hypocrisy. And the target of that passage is the scribes and the Pharisees. And by the way, the organization they were a part of, the Sanhedrin, it controlled everything that went on at the temple. These were the leaders of Israel. And this is what Jesus said about them. They preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then, you know, in that passage, there's seven woes. Woe to you, woe to you, seven different times. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you... And, and we've read this so many times, probably if you've been around the Bible or around Christianity very long, but just let these words sink in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. You'll cross the ocean to evangelize, he's saying. And when... And when your convert becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. Whoo! That's pretty strong language, isn't it? He's saying, you're children of Satan. You're children of hell. You're, I curse you is what he's saying, pretty much. You're hypocrites. You don't help people find God. You repel people. You condemn people. You damn people. That's what he's saying. That's what the words mean in this passage. He hates hypocrisy. And Jesus is using this fig tree as an object lesson, as a living parable, or a dying parable in this case, because his disciples heard what he said, and they're about to watch what he does. And we are too. We're his disciples, and Jesus wants us to take notice. He is the king who inspects. And guys, listen, I don't say that to wag my finger, like, you better be bearing enough fruit. It's not really about that kind of application. Are you bearing enough fruit? How much fruit did this fig tree have? None. No fruit. It was completely barren. It wasn't that, well, they pray a little bit. You need to read your Bible a little bit more. That's not what this passage is about. The Bible does make that claim. You should be praying. Pray without ceasing, the Bible says. But that's not the takeaway from this. That's not the takeaway. This is the temple and the nation of Israel existed. God called them into existence so that they would be a light to the nations, so that they would be a blessing to the nations. So that like the queen of Sheba in the Old Testament, they would hear, they would come from afar, they would see, and behold, the half wasn't told them. There was no breath left in them when they saw how amazing and mighty God was. But that wasn't happening. 
people were coming to the temple to find God, and what were they encountering instead? Greed, hypocrisy, idolatry, adultery. All these things were going on with the religious leaders and establishment. They couldn't find God. They couldn't see through this, this fog and this hage of hypocrisy and, re and religiosity. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is inspecting this tree. He's inspecting his temple. And that should be a lesson to, uh, to all of us. You know, the latest surveys, I know surveys, there's no lies like statistics, right? But some of the best surveys, I'm a church planner and I care about these things. Some of the best surveys tell us this. One of the top three objections non-believers give for the reason they're not interested in Christianity or church at all is what? You hear it all the time. Hypocrisy. And I know we can say, ah, you know, you know, there's room for more hypocrites. Come and join. I know, I, I get all that. But guys, when, it, when you look around and you look at the news and you see all the stuff that's going on, there is some validity to that. Jesus hates that. That shuts people out of the kingdom. They're supposed to come, in some sense, the church is not the temple. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But the church is supposed to be a place where people can come and encounter God. And if they come here to hear great news of, 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 of great joy for all peoples, and instead they find hypocrisy, they get lost in this maze of religion, they don't find God, they don't hear good news, they find abuse and exploitation and heavy-handed authority from leaders who are blind, they don't even have self-awareness. What in the world? I will tell you this. I don't know why. I don't know why. And I'm being very candid with you because, you know, we're a family. We don't share secrets or keep secrets here, rather. <laughs> it seems to me, we're in our fifth year of existence. It seems to me that a lot of people come to Grace Life who have been deeply hurt by a church, deeply hurt by religious hypocrisy. And it takes them a long time to heal. And that's the kind of thing Jesus hates that. He hates it. He inspects it. He sees it. And he confronts it. And man, I just, I pray. We'll talk about this more in application. I just pray that this church, there's a, there's a reason we called our name Grace Life. I want this to be a place where people can come and encounter God. They can hear good news of great joy for all people. They don't get lost in a maze of hypocrisy or religion or bureaucracy. I get tired of that. That's one of the reasons I wanted to plant a church. It's like, man, let's just get back to the basic uh, irreducible minimum. Why does the church exist? To preach good news. That's why we're here. And I'm going to do that until God takes me home or, you know, if, and if I stop doing that, be very concerned and come and talk to all the elders to say, we got to get that guy out of here because he's doing exactly what the religious hypocrites did there. He's shutting up the kingdom of people. That's the only reason we exist is to help people find Christ. That's why we're here. Everything else we can do better in heaven. We can pray better, worship better, read our Bibles better. But we can't evangelize. Can't do that. So Jesus cursed this tree, and some people have a hard time with it. Like, why do you have to curse it, though? The tree didn't do anything. Listen, guys, the tree was already dead anyway, right? It wasn't serving its purpose anymore. Jesus didn't want that tree to deceive anybody else. He did, he did everybody a favor. Have you ever went to a vending machine and it stole your quarter? Come on. What did you do? Did you kick it? Did you curse it? No. <laughs> you know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you're not going to steal quarters from anybody else. I'm serving notice. H hadn't you just wondered, like, well, somebody put a sign up. Look, don't bother. Don't waste your time or your money. 
Or maybe you've been to, at a gas station to get gas and the debit card thing didn't work and you're like, man, why is there not a sign here? Somebody, you'd make your own sign and put it up there. Don't mess with this. It'll, it'll steal you and deceive you. That's what Jesus is doing. In fact, one person said this. Kent Hughes, I love this guy. He said, the reason Jesus cursed the barren fig tree was because he wanted it to become a visible parable of what was happening to Israel. In actuality, he honored that tree. I love the way this guy looks at things. Glass is always half full. He honored that tree, making it the most useful tree that ever grew. It was and is a tree from which thousands have learned about themselves and turned back to God. If one soul has been made to consider its life through that tree, it did not wither in vain. Isn't that good? This is what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, when Jesus went to take the figs promised by the leaves, there were none. Israel, like this fig tree, showed outward signs of bearing fruit. But those who came to it hungry for God were deceived and famished. And that's why he cursed it. And nobody will ever go to inspect this tree and try and find fruit. They'll know. Don't bother. It's dead. It's cursed. It's withered from the roots up. It doesn't even serve a function anymore. Maybe except cut it down and break the branches off and start a fire and cook something with it. That's what this is about. So next point, point number two. Not only is this the king who inspects, this is also the king who brings order. The king who brings order. And that's the next part of this passage here. Check it out in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Full stop. Man, I love, I love trying to imagine this. And, and I don't know, maybe I'm just a weirdo. Maybe I'm quirky. But maybe I, I love movies too much. But I love slow motion sequences. Do you guys, in those epic movies... When like some kind of John Williams uh, epic soundtrack comes on and it goes in slow motion, you're like, okay, man, it's something's about to go down here. I want to see this. I just see this whole thing in slow motion. I do. I see Jesus walking up with his disciples behind him into the temple. And I don't know if there were doors there, but like he burst them open, you know? He burst open the doors and he walks in and he looks around. Then I, 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 I don't want to nerd out here, geek out on the Bible, but giving you a context of what was going on here, I think will be helpful. This was a circus. Jesus walked into a religious circus. There were animals everywhere. Sheep, oxen, cattle, pigeons, doves, goats, lambs, bleeding. The sounds, the sights, the smells. It would have been disturbing. There were tables neatly arranged because probably the priests were OCD like me. All these tables would have been neatly lined up with coins on them. Because when you went up to the temple for Passover, you paid your temple tax. And because you could not use Roman coins because they had an image of Caesar on them, and that was idolatrous, you had to exchange the Roman money for the Jewish money, a shekel. So they would have a, a table set up for you to do your coin exchange for a small fee, of course, right? Or maybe not so small. Because this wasn't really about worshiping God. It was about money and greed, and they exploited you and extorted you. So all these, all these tables were set up with coins, lines of people. You know, when you traveled, and people did, they traveled from hundreds of miles away for Passover. Jews and Gentiles from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. And you had to offer an animal for sacrifice when you got there. And you didn't travel with animals. It was very inconvenient, especially if you came by ship. Can you imagine bringing your goats and your lambs and your oxen and your pigeons? Well, that's inconvenient. That's weird. That would be like you going on vacation and trying to pack... 
10 days worth of lunches for your family. You don't do that. What do you do? You buy local. When you get there, you find a, you know, I don't know, McDonald's or whatever, whatever you're into, and you buy there. Well, that's what the temple was offering. All these worshipers were coming, and they needed sacrificial animals that were without blemish and without spot and without wrinkle. They had to be temple approved. So don't waste your time looking for one. We'll provide for you right here for a small fee. <laughs> and by the way, if you buy from the temple, the priest won't, won't give you a hard time getting them, getting them a pass. You know what I mean? You would have to buy your, your animal and then present it to the priest. Is this good enough? Well, I don't know. Let me see there. Where'd you get it? Oh, we got it over here at the temple. No problem. Go on through. Line short for you. You get a quick pass like Disney. It was a religious circus. None of that stuff was supposed to take place in the temple. It was supposed to happen outside of the temple. In fact, it used to be set up on the Mount of Olives until the high priest, Caiaphas, moved it inside the temple for convenience. So this was supposed to be a place where Jews and Gentiles, all the nations, could come and encounter God. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. supposed to be quiet, reflective, a place where you could meditate and pray and get a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the power and the beauty and the grace of God. But instead, it was this. It was a circus. If you want to know what it would have been like, imagine... Have you seen uh, videos of Wall Street trade? I'm not a financial guru. What is it? The Wall Street stock floor exchange? Papers flying, people waving cell phones, hollering, yelling. Have you seen that? It would be that and then add livestock. That's what it would have been like. Wall Street meets the county fair, right? Sheep bleeding. Jesus walked in. This is his temple. He's the king. He's about to bring order. And I see all of this in slow motion. And I, lo I love what I see. I just got to be honest with you. I love this about Jesus. This is the meek and the mild and the lowly Jesus, right? Jesus is a lamb and he's also a lion. And I love that about him because if Jesus took any personality test that human beings offer, he would flunk it. Because he's like, he's picking up children and blessing them, you know. And then at the other, on the other hand, he's making a whip out of rope and turning over tables and chasing people out of the temple. I just love that. What personality profile does that fit? None. Utterly unique. There's no king who's ever been like this king. And why is he doing all this? To make a scene? No, he's doing this for you and for me. Because the temple had lost its purpose. It wasn't functioning the way it was supposed to, and Jesus had to do something about it. So I see in slow motion Jesus walking in, and, and I know, I'm just being honest with you, I know there's some people, they want to soften this. Like he took, he took the table and he was like, oh. no, uh-uh, that's, that's not what happened. That's not what happened, man. Mel Gibson could probably do a good, he does good slow motion scenes. He would like flip the table up, coins going everywhere. Priest and Gentiles like me, like shekels going to the floor and getting the coin. Goats jumping up. I love it. This king came, and this is his temple, and he's bringing back order. And I love that about Jesus, don't you? He's fighting for his people. He is the king for the people. He's not afraid. And you know what? We'll get to this last point. Jesus knew exactly what this will do. It would seal his death. He doesn't care. He's not afraid. That's why he came. He came to pave the way back to God because it had been lost. It had been lost. People were blown away by the temple. The temple was amazing. Have you, have you guys ever seen pictures of the temple? The temple that Herod built for the Jews? It was amazing. Uh, Josephus was a historian and he said, 
Herod adorned the outside of the temple with so much gold that when the sun shined on it, it blinded those who looked at it. It had marble walls, had white uh, limestone washed uh, sections, had gold on the very top. The pilgrims that were walking up on that same road that Jesus was on where the fig tree was located that he cursed, they would be blinded by the magnificence and the glory of that temple. All leaves, all leaves. But in that system, once you got there, it was empty and it was hollow and it was deceptive and it was a scam. The whole thing was a scam. It was bunk. It didn't do anything that God intended for it to do. It had abandoned that long ago. In fact, this is really interesting. I think I was telling Melissa this. If you read the book of Ezekiel, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, chapters 9, 10, and 11 says something very interesting. It says there was so much sin and corruption and idolatry going on within the temple from the religious leaders that the glory departed and left. You guys remember this? And Ichabod was written over the door, which means the glory departed. And Ezekiel has this vision of the glory leaving. And, and I get chill bumps thinking about this. And, and in Ezekiel chapters 9 and 10 and 11, it says that the glory lifted up out of the temple and went through the gates and went... Uh, went up the mount and then down the mount to Bethany, up the Mount of Olives and, and disappeared over the horizon. It was gone. The glory left the temple. And here's what's interesting. The Bible calls Jesus in Hebrews 1.3 the brightness of God's glory, right? The brightness of God's glory. You want to know what the glory of God is? It's Jesus. Personified glory right there. And he is coming back to the temple. The same exact path that the glory left in Ezekiel's vision. Mount of Olives, Bethany, down the Temple Mount, through the gates of Jerusalem, and up into the courts. And glory came back, and it's like nothing's changed. Nothing's changed in a thousand years. Still the same corruption and greed and vice and bribery. It was terrible. And so this king does something about it. Lots of leaves, but no fruit at all. Let me show you a picture here where this, where this actually took place. Can you guys see this? This is really important. I, I was praying this morning like, Lord, I don't want this to be a lecture. I don't want it to be cold data information. Don't we get enough of that? I can send you an email with all the details, but this is, I think this will help you. The temple was set up. There were three courts, okay? The biggest court was called the Court of the Gentiles, and it was like three football fields long. You can see it there. Let me, I got my pointer here, my laser, I think. See it? That is the court of the Gentiles. I've never used this in here. This is really cool. <laughs> court of the Gentiles. Three football fields, three football fields. Now, now just stop for a minute. Stop for a minute. What does that tell you about the heart of God for outsiders? What does that tell you about, about God's heart for outsiders? How much does God care that people like you and me that have no stock in Israel can come and find him? That's a, that blows me away. The biggest part of the temple was for outsiders to come and find God. That's exactly where Jesus walked in and saw it. He said, right here, you're going to do this right here, where the outsiders are supposed to come and find grace and hope and forgiveness and truth. No, no, not today, not in my temple. So there's the, there's the court of the Gentiles, and then there's the court of the women, and then there's the court of the men, and then there's the Holy of Holies. See the smoke going up right there. So this is God's presence. And to get to God's presence, you had to go through this area. And you couldn't get through there because all the business transactions that were going on. And it made Jesus furious. But he never lost control, not for a minute. 
Not for a minute. He was in complete control of himself. Knew exactly what he was doing. Master of the moment. And all of this was necessary. So I heard in seminary, one of our classes, we were talking about this. And we were talking about Matthew 23. Like Jesus said some, he said some hard things. And the teacher said, Jesus never said anything that wasn't absolutely necessary. Now that was, I had to go and chew on that. Not, not that I didn't agree with it. That it just made me think everything that Jesus said and not everything he said is even recorded. If all the things he did and said were recorded, the whole world couldn't contain the books, the Bible says, right? But just the things that are recorded for us, every single one of them was necessary. When he said, go tell that fox, Herod, that's necessary that he said that. He called Herod a fox, right? Matthew 23, the seven woes, necessary. Cursing the fig tree had to happen for us to know more about what kind of king we serve. But all of this had to happen because in order to get to the presence of God, you had to go through that, and you couldn't. It was shutting up the kingdom of God to people. And Jesus couldn't handle that. He could not stand for that. He couldn't then, and he won't now. The church does this so often. It does. I mean, that's our purpose. That's our vision. We exist to help people encounter the grace of Christ. And I was trying to think, like, is there another organization that not only doesn't do what it's supposed to do, uh, but does the exact opposite? And I thought of, honestly, I thought of Planned Parenthood. I really didn't. I'm not, and I promise, I'm not trying to get political. This illustration really does fit. Because they exist for health care for women, right? Unless you happen to be a female infant and your mom wants to abort you, then not so much for health care. But that whole organization supposedly exists to help families and to serve women. And it doesn't. It's a lie. It's a slaughterhouse is what it is. And when I think of that parallel, I think of the temple. That's why Jesus did such radical things like this. To call people to, excuse me, to call people to account. This glory was empty. The court of the Gentiles was for outsiders, but nobody could find their way through it. And it's also interesting, Aaron, you'll like this. Another Lord of the Rings reference here, okay, buddy? <laughs> it also says, look at this. It says, uh, verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Has that verse ever stood out to you? He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You know why? That had become a shortcut for people to get to the Mount of Olives. A lot shorter path if you just cut across the court of Gentiles and carry your merchandise with you. You know what Jesus is doing? He's like, you shall not pass. That's what he's saying. No, no more. I, this blows my mind when I think about it because when people think of Jesus, even the pictures you see, he's like this pale, weak. Um, and I don't know, maybe he, I mean, he was outside a lot in the Middle East. I don't think he was pale and he walked up and down the hills. He probably had, you know, muscular thighs. I don't know. But, but this image people have of Jesus, he's like this weak, anemic. They're like, well, he did ride in on a donkey. He's humble and lowly and meek. Yeah, but weakness is not weakness. Meekness is great power and strength under control. And how in the world did Jesus do this and get away with it? Because he had authority. Nobody ever spoke like him, you know? Jesus is exercising divine authority. He's stopping. He's saying, no, you're not walking through here. No, get out. He's turning tables over. He's confronting people. He's making a ruckus. I love that because it was necessary. It had to happen. 
So he's saying, you shall not. He goes into bouncer mode. You know what it says when he, when he casts people out? The Greek word is ekbalo. And it's the same word used for demons being cast out of their host. Don't you love that? Jesus is not saying, go away now, get out, move on, shoo. He doesn't use a broom. He's like casting people out. Ow. Don't make my father's house a den of thieves. And he quotes Isaiah. And he quotes Jeremiah. He's saying this is supposed to be a place where people can come and find God and encounter God. And instead you've made it a den of thieves. And this is not happening. Not on my watch. In John's account, he, he, he cleansed the temple twice. He did it at the very beginning of his ministry, which is recorded in John 2. And there he made a, he made a whip out of rope. And here he does it at the very end. But he's driving people out, he's overturning tables, and he's using force to do it. He was directly challenging the authority of the high priest. Because listen, the high priest authorized all that. He was the one man responsible for it. And Jesus knew that. And that's why I love, that's why I love this. He goes into bouncer mode and casts all these people out. Doves are flying, tables are turned over. And here's the best part of this. Do you know that everyone believed that when the Messiah would come, he would come to his temple. That was what prophecy said. They said when he came to his temple, they believed that he would cleanse the temple of the foreigners, especially the Gentiles. Get them all out. Get them out. They're half-bloods. They don't belong in here. They don't, they're, they're not worthy to worship here. But you know what Jesus, the people's king, did? He cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. Do you see the difference? He's a king for the people. He didn't cleanse it of the Gentiles. He cleansed it for the Gentiles because he wanted there to be a place where we can come and find God. Now, I have an application for you as we think about the culture of Grace Life Church. And I, again, I know, I know that uh, this is not a temple. This is a gathering. And, and the church is not a place. It's a people. Um, but there is a culture at a church. And wouldn't you agree that this should be a place wherever we gather, and we're looking for a building, by the way, shouldn't this be a place that when people come, they can hear good news and, and encounter the goodness and the grace of Christ? That's what glory is. In the Old Testament, when Moses told God, let me see your glory, let me see your glory, remember he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then he made a declaration. I am the Lord, the Lord forgiving tens of thousands of their iniquity, showing steadfast love. That's the glory of God. And that's what people should see and experience when they come here. Wouldn't you agree with that? Ray Orland wrote this book called The Gospel, and it says, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. And uh, that's one of my favorite books. If you haven't read it, it's really easy to read. But he says this, What is gospel culture? Because that's what I want at this church. And I know that's what you want. I want a culture of gospel. He says, What is gospel culture? It is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, vibe, feel, tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness. Indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. So it is doctrinal purity, which is non-negotiable. Okay, Doctrinal purity wedded to relational beauty. That's a gospel culture. People come here and they hear good news. And they see good news, right? They see it lived out. They see how it has liberated the people. And Ray Ortland said this. He has a church at, at uh, Emmanuel, Nashville. When Jeff and I planted this church, we, we stole some of our 
service stuff from Ray. He says, as I conduct our services at Emmanuel Nashville, we begin with a call to worship. That means Ray gets up every week and says this, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners, welcome. And then Ray said this, I, have, I often have to ask the Lord to check my rising emotions and help me get through this greeting as I stand before the people with an awareness of their desperate need and the Savior's massive love. But this is a powerful moment, defining the entire service at the very outset. It has become definitional of our gospel culture. And I love that. And I've always wanted that here. In fact, we used to say that. But could you say that at the temple when Jesus... <laughs> When Jesus showed up, to all who, who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to everyone who sins and needs a Savior, no. They'd be like, what, what are you here for? What do you need? You want to see God? Okay, get in line, and I hope you have a lot of money. What kind of, a me- what kind of corrupt, perverted message was that? And a lot of churches still give that message. But here's another application, okay? Jesus shows up at the temple, and it's his house. It belongs to him. And where's the temple now, by the way? It's us, Holy Spirit, dwelling within us. We're a living temple. We're a temple on wheels. We're mobile, right? Everywhere we go, we're supposed to show who God is and what He's like. And listen, Jesus has the authority to move the furniture around in our temple too. (laughs) If our temple has stopped doing what God intended for it to do, He has that divine prerogative. He has that right. And listen, that's one of the ways you know that God is active and alive working within you. Listen, he moves furniture around. He pushes things to the outside that don't need to be in the middle on the throne. We talked about that last week, right? When you start letting those things crawl up on the throne and get in the center of your life, like your health, your career, your relationships, and Christ is dethroned, things get all out of whack. Nothing works right. One man said this, if you have a God who never challenges you and never convicts you, who doesn't have a hard edge to his will and lets you do anything you want, Jesus is telling you in this passage, that's an imaginary God. If you have a God who never challenges you, I mean, look at the disciples. They were challenged all the time. That's how you know he's Lord and he's in. He moves things around, doesn't he? And it's always the right thing to move. That's how the Holy Spirit convicts us. Listen, there wasn't anything wrong with changing out the money from the idolatrous Roman images to the shekels that were Jewish currency. There wasn't anything wrong with seeking to provide animals that were fitting and and in accordance with what the Old Testament prescribed. But they weren't supposed to be doing that in the middle of the temple. That was for worship, not for trading. Well, here's point number three. And it'll be fast, I promise, okay? Real fast. Not only is this... um, I forgot the other two points. <laughs> but it is also the king <laughs> who sacrifices. Do you hear like a common theme here? The king who brings order, that's a king. The king who inspects and curses, that's like a prophet, right? Prophets did that. They took inventory of Israel and they pronounced a curse. So there's a prophet, there's a king, and what else is there? There's a priest. See, the temple was all about offering sacrifices, how to get back into God's presence. How are you going to do that? Well, the temple failed to do it, just like... All the leaders and kings of Israel failed to do it, just like Adam and Eve failed to do it, and just like you and I failed to do it. See, we were kicked out of Eden, 
And forgive me if, I, if I'm kicking a dead horse here, I say it often, but it's a powerful imagery that God gave us. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they were sent away. The Bible says this. It says, he drove out the man. The Lord God drove out the man and the woman. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I've never really seen any good artwork on this. If you find any, help me and send it to me because I'm curious how people envision this. But the word angels is in plural. There's, there's at least two, maybe more angels. And there's this flaming sword of justice saying you've sinned, you've violated God's perfect will. And there's no getting back into the presence of God unless you undergo the sword of justice, which is a flaming sword and will consume you. That's the only way you'll ever get back in the presence of God. And that's all the temple was supposed to say. These animals, these lambs, they're a picture of the slaughter and the violence and the bloodshed that has to happen if you're going to get back in God's presence. Here was the message, okay? If you're going to walk back into God's presence, you better have something bloody in your hands. Right? And what did Jesus do? He knew exactly what would happen when he, when he did this. He knew that it would set off a chain reaction of events that was prophesied thousands of years before that ultimately he would become the sacrificial lamb. And he would have to shed his blood and his body would have to be broken. That's what we commemorate every first Sunday at the Lord's Supper. This was the king who sacrificed himself. This is the king who went under the sword of justice so that we could be back in God's presence. He swallowed the debt. He absorbed the wrath of God, which is what is required. Somebody had to pay our penalty for violating God's law. We're guilty, the Bible says. We're rebels. We're born in sin. We're dead in sin. We need to be quick and we need to be alive. We need a sacrifice that's perfect and acceptable. And that's what Jesus is. That's what he became. But this sealed, this sealed the cross for him. And that's a good thing for us. We celebrate that. We sit back and we say Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and what it would cost him. And he did it. He did it for outsiders like us. And here's the final takeaway, guys. I want to ask you this. Is this the king that you follow? Do you know what he did for you? He gave us life for you. He did all this for you. So that you could be back in the presence of God, even though you and I don't deserve to be there. The one person that did deserve to be there was Jesus, and he left the presence of God. He became an outsider so that you and I could be brought into the family. It cost him his life. And I would ask you this. Are you following this king? I want to be a good shepherd to you. I want to be a good pastor to you and ask you this. You know, my favorite song, it's a Christmas song, but I wish we sang it, John, <clears throat> more often, even during the year. Um, it's joy to the world. My wife's not in here today. She's working in the back. I could sing it and not get in trouble, but I won't. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What's the next line? Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Have you done that? That's good theology. Those Christmas carols are great theology. Have you prepared him room? Or is he like pushed out to the edges of your life? Maybe there's a lot of leaves, there's a lot of busyness, there's a lot of activity. And you've forgotten what all of this Christianity is about. It's about you getting back into the presence of God. And there's only one way for you to get there. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, walking over my broken body and my, and my shed blood for them. That's, that's what kind of king he is. He is a king for the people. Are you one of them? Jesus died for messed up people like us. And he delights when one sinner 
repents. The angels in heaven, the Bible says, rejoice over one sinner who repents and comes to Christ. Have you done that? Have you said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve your grace, but that's the very meaning of grace. It's getting what you don't deserve, mercy and compassion and being brought into the family, finding a place at the king's table, knowing you don't belong there, but that God wants you there. He wants you. He wants you. Let's pray.